and welcome. I am your host, Emma Gunnar Wardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you. Whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. My guest in this episode is the author Daniel H. Pink, and I'm going to level with you listeners. I loved this conversation. But that's not to say the content is entirely easy or comfortable. But that actually has been a bit of a theme recently. I feel very lucky that of late I've had some incredibly fascinating guests on the show who have explored some quite uncomfortable topics in extremely helpful ways. So there was Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari discussing anxiety, Dr. Tracy Shaw's explaining her research into trauma, and Dr. Nate Zimzer's analysis of how to cultivate a more confident mind. All of these discussions involved one thing, which is also common in this conversation with Daniel about regret, being honest with yourself about your role in whatever situation you find yourself in and being accountable for the work required to help yourself. The crucial part of that, of course, is sitting with these negative feelings and emotions when they arise, analyzing them, learning from them and using them positively. So regret. So Daniel's book, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward, Regret is an interesting subject, and honestly, I don't think I've ever considered it, especially not publicly. My regrets are something I am, for the most part, ashamed of and embarrassed by. I definitely have them, but by hiding them, I'm allowing them to sit in the shadows and haunt me. Daniel and I actually dig into this during our conversation, and not doing what I should be doing with them, which is taking them into the light, paying attention to what they are trying to teach me, and learning from them. So Daniel's work has led him to identify four types of regrets. There's boldness regrets, those regrets where you think, oh, if only I had taken the chance. Foundation regrets, where you think, if only I'd done the work. Moral regrets, if only I'd done the right thing. And connection regrets, if only I had reached out. We cover a lot of ground in this episode. And as you'll hear in the show, Daniel was so engaged and thoughtful and shares his insights from his research in psychology, neuroscience, economics, and biology, which challenged some widely held assumptions about our emotions and our behaviors. He's also conducted the largest sampling of attitudes about regret in his World Regret Survey, which has collected over 21,000 entries. And one of his key learnings from that survey is that by understanding what we regret the most, we can understand what we value the most. So if you are ever tough on yourself, find yourself ruminating and focusing on your flaws or your past errors and what you've done wrong, then I think this conversation is one you'll find a huge amount of value in. I will, of course, put the link to Daniel and the book in the show notes, but here he is, Daniel Pink on The Emma Gunn Show. It is my great pleasure to welcome Daniel Pink to the podcast. How are you? I'm good, Emma. Thanks for having me. Um, You've written an incredible book called The Power of Regret. Subtitle, How Looking Backwards Moves Us Forward. And do you know what? The first thing I want to know is what was the hypothesis and why did you, 
why did this turn into a book? And not well, just a, a yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I had a hypothesis going in. Uh, I had more of a set of questions going in. And, and at the heart of those questions was, how do I deal with my own regrets? And what's going on in my life where I look backward and I wish I had done something differently or wish I had done something in a different way or wish I had not done something. And just being curious about that brought me into looking at some of the research on it. And what I realized is that there was this gap between kind of public perception of this emotion and the reality of the emotion, public perception of the emotion, especially here in the States was always be positive, never be negative, always look forward, never look backward, Regret is a waste of time. And what the research said was something very different. Well, yeah, exactly. So this is where the research has been very, very interesting. And I think you're right. It's this idea, and I know that's something that you open the book with, about no regrets. This idea of no regrets. I've heard friends say it. I've seen it from in talks from people I admire. But actually, regrets are the things that it's messages saying, learn from this. Uh, precisely. You know, the, 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 the thing about... There are a few things about regret. Number one is 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 I think the reason so many people who you know have talked about it is because the emotion is so prevalent. It's one of the most common emotions that human beings have. It's arguably the most common negative emotion that human beings have. So it's ubiquitous. And even though, it, but it's also unpleasant. And and the reason for for that weird combination is that it's useful if we treat it right. And the problem is is that we haven't been instructed well how to how to treat it right. So many of us, you know, succumb to that empty-headed philosophy and say, oh, "I don't have any regrets. I never look backward. I'm always positive." That's a bad idea. Now, what's also a bad idea is wallowing in your regrets, ruminating in your regrets, bathing in your regrets. That's not a good idea, too. We want to do exactly what you said, Emma, which is use them as messages, as signals, as data, as information, as wake-up calls. And when we do that. Once again, the research shows that the benefits are considerable. Well, it's interesting. I very recently had uh, uh, Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari on the podcast talking about anxiety and how the way that we treat that has maybe been, is not the most effective way because again, feelings of anxiety are messages, they're signals to help us move forward. And it leans very much into what you were just saying about this idea that we well, I'd be curious what you think about this, that we've almost decided that the best default or that human factory settings should be that we eradicate negative emotions. Well, I mean, that's a really profoundly interesting point. And I, and I think that we are, we're leaning in that direction. That, um, and I like the way you put it about the, the, the factory. Essentially, what, what you're suggesting, if I can sort of see you and raise you a bit on your metaphor, is not that that those are that 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 those that that those are the default settings that we want to actually adjust the default settings that that actually our default setting our brains are designed they've evolved to have some of these negative emotions that negative emotions are useful and i think that what we're trying to do is is get into the machinery and change the default setting and that's a bad idea now there's nuance here, and this is what I think people have a hard time wrapping their minds around sometimes, is that here's the thing, like on the difference between positive emotions and negative emotions, I want to have 
lots of positive emotions. I want you to have lots of positive emotions. I want your listeners to have lots of positive emotions. Positive emotions make life worth living. Positive emotions are great, but it is not a healthy recipe for living if you have only positive emotions, because as you're saying, many negative emotions are in small doses and the right doses are useful. They help us live. They help us survive. They help us learn. They help us improve. And so it's dangerous to try to eradicate those. Instead, what we should be doing is recognize, hey, these are the default settings. Let's talk about how to use this machine effectively given those settings. Well, it's also this other trend that I see. I don't know if you've seen this too, which is that if you're only having good emotions, well, first of all, you can only feel good if you understand what it feels like to feel That's bad, I think. Yeah. So this idea that you're only having good emotions, what does that even look or feel like? That I mean, is that that's euphoria yeah. and is that is that even achievable? Well, that's an I mean, that's an interesting point. I haven't really thought about it. I haven't really thought about it that way. I guess the only way to know that something is positive is to experience something that is negative. Uh, I, I think that's <clears throat> I think that's an interesting I think that's an interesting way to look at it. I think the other thing is that we can look at the functional basis of these negative emotions by imagining in a world where they're gone. So let's say we go, you know, I'm going to stick with your metaphor here. Let's say we go in and we change the default settings on the human machine. And we say, we unclick the box that says fear. So we're unable to experience fear. I don't want that. I want to be able to experience fear. If we could eradicate fear, people would die in burning buildings because they would say, oh, the building's burning around me. I feel okay about that because I'm all positive all the time. And they don't get out of the building um, or even, you know, even think about a negative emotion like um, I mean, all kinds of negative emotions. But think about a negative emotion like like grief. Grief is a terrible emotion. But the reason that we have the emotion of grief is because we have the counterpart emotion of love. Grief. When we grieve, we're reminded of why we love. We grieve because we love. And so if I could wave a magic wand or, again, go into the, the settings of the human machine and, and unclick grief, I don't think I want to do that uh, because it's there, for, it's there for a reason. And so what we have to do, what we need is a more calibrated approach to negative emotions. And when we line up all these negative emotions, the most common, the most prevalent, and I think the most transformative is this emotion of regret. And actually, I think a bit like anxiety, it can almost be a superpower especially if you're listening. And by superpower, I know that's kind of a twee way of saying it. What I mean is if you are self-aware enough to analyze that regret and figure out what it's trying to teach you and then act on that. And I guess you've got a, a brilliant example that you talk about in the book and I've heard you talk about previously about one of the things that you look back on when you were younger was this, uh, the kindness regret. Yeah. And how that that now that regret is now a huge part of you because you counteract your inaction in the past with action in the present. Right. I mean, right, right. I mean, that's that's a big yeah, you're exact you're exactly right. That's a somewhat peculiar regret in that for precisely the inaction action distinction that you're you're drawing out there. But but sure. And, and, and this is I mean, it's, it's an example of why regret is useful, because if I have you know, I look back on my life and, and, and have regrets about kindness, particularly when I was when I was younger, not so much regrets about bullying. I don't I didn't do that 
but regrets about as you exactly as you say of inaction of standing by when people were being mistreated of not stepping in when people were being excluded bugs me um and it's the kind of thing where you know these are things that happened 30 years ago 40 years ago in some cases and you know there's so many decisions i made for instance yesterday that i don't even remember let alone that bother me but if i'm there are actions and inactions that are 40 years ago that I still remember and still stab at me. That's telling me something. That's the message that you're talking about. And the message is saying, hello, wake up. This is something that you, you, this is something that you value that we're, we're, we're clarifying what you value and we're also giving you guidance on what to do next. And so for me, that kind of regret treated right says, Here's what you value, and here's what you should do. Now, I could treat it differently. I could say, no regrets. It was in the past. Who cares? Always look forward. I, that, that's not, a, I, I don't, I might momentarily feel better. I don't think I'm going to extinguish that regret, but I might momentarily feel better, but I'm not going to do any better in the future. What's more, I could also go the other way and say, oh my God, I was unkind as a young man. I'm just, a, that just, that, that says everything there is to know about my character. I am the worst person. I'm just horrible. I'm always this way. And I spin myself into rumination. That's a bad idea, too. What I want to do is just look it in the eye and do something about it. That's the thing, staring it down. Right. And, and, but do you have, have you made peace with your past actions? Well, I mean, hmm, what do you mean by making peace? That's an interesting way to put it. Okay, actually, making peace probably isn't the right way of saying it. Uh, do well, it you might have... be. It might be because I think that the answer to that question would be no. I don't know if I've made peace with it. Um, I don't like it. it. It still bothers me. Now, what I've done is I've enlisted it to do better in the future. But I'm not sure whether that's making peace with it. Mm, okay. What about the idea of... Do you have compassion for your younger self? I, I, well, I, that is a hugely important point, and it's something that I'm trying to do, and it's something that I've tried to do. And it also ends up being that practice ends up being central in how we can equip people to deal more effectively with their regrets. Um, and, and it's uh, you know, as you know from the book, there's a there's a whole line of research on what's called self compassion that is central in helping us. Um, not, not only move past regret, not, not, but, but actually put ourselves in a situation where we can glean lessons and guidance from it. Mm. Okay. So for people who are listening, who might be thinking, and I did ask my Facebook group, uh, what their thoughts were on regret and we'll share some of those later, okay. but pretty much everyone who replied obviously had a stance on how they feel about regret, whether they have them, whether they don't, whether they believe in no regrets. But can we talk through the types of regret, actually, sure. because I think that that is actually that was really empowering when I was reading the book, because regrets can swim around your head sure. like apex predators in your brain kind of like having really like feasting on your thoughts and feelings and emotions. Yeah. But actually almost like putting a name to them and understanding mm -hmm. the, the thread is really valuable, I think. Uh, sure. And, and and this is this is one of the things that I tried to do almost inadvertently or some that I managed to do somewhat inadvertently in the book, which is that among the ways that I researched this topic were looking at, you know, a half century of research in various fields of science about this emotion, 
Uh, I did a, 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 pub, a large public opinion poll here in the US on American attitudes on regret. But then what I also did is I, I've collected regrets, a lot of regrets from all over the world. Right now, this week, we crossed the 21,000 mark. So we have a database now. I know it's unbelievable. The World Regret <laughs> Survey. They keep coming in. I set up the World Regret Survey. I set up the World Regret Survey in my research largely to collect some stories, some texture, so I could write about this emotion. What I didn't expect was this incredible outpouring. So now we have this literal, I mean, they keep coming in. 21,000 or over 21,000 regrets from people in 109 countries. And that proved to be revelatory because as I read through those regrets, and I, I haven't read them all, I've read the first 15,000, the, 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 what you realize, if you listen to people's language, if you listen carefully to what they say, if you scrutinize their words, you realize that around the world, people seem to have the same four core regrets. And these regrets have less to do with the part of life in which we're operating, less to do with, say, this is a, um, a career regret, this is an education regret, this is a health regret, and have to do with something a little bit deeper. You're making me think, and I'm going to have to ask you about this one now, slight tangent. The guy on the train who got off, or let the- let, the, Who didn't let get the, off, yeah. Who didn't get off the train, that stayed with me for days. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I absorbed his regret for him. Yeah, that's a pretty compelling, that's a pretty compelling story um, uh, about a guy. It's an American guy who, who was in Europe working as a, uh, he was a young, just a graduated university. He was working in Sweden for a year and he was on a train. And anyway, he went one day, he's on his train and a woman sits next to him and he's, they have this kind of magical moment where they bond in a way, they have an affinity that essentially what, what sounds almost like instant love um, on this train and to, from somebody who just randomly sits next to him. And, uh, you know, hours later, it's her stop. She gets off. He says, I'll go with you. She says, oh, I, I, I don't, you know, and, and he doesn't know what to do. And he writes his mother's mailing address on a piece of paper hands it to her they kiss she leaves the train and 40 years later he says i always wish i stepped off the train yeah so but but this tells us something this yeah. tells us something and and in this and this and this fellow who whom i interviewed um he 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 submitted something to the world regret survey this uh you know your listeners can go online worldregretsurvey.com we have an interactive map where you can click on a country or a U.S. state or Canadian province and see some of the regrets from there. Um, but but this guy submitted his regret. And then I also gave people the option of um, including their email address if they wanted to be contacted for a follow up interview. And he included his email address. And so I did some follow up interviews with him. And he's he's a he's a lovely guy. He's a, just a, a just a, a very nice, decent, smart, interesting guy. And yet eating at him mm. is this regret. And I think that it, again, I don't want to psychoanalyze the guy, but he, I think eating at him is less a vision that had he gotten off the train, he would have led this glorious life with this beautiful woman. I think what's really eating at him is the fact that he had a moment in his life when he could have done something bold and he didn't. And that ends up being a, powerfully common regret mm. 
boldness regret is just so that's the one where it's if only I'd taken the chance I think that's the one and that that example is so perfect in the book aside from the potential love story that I think we all write for him in our heads when when you read that in particular right right it's this idea of being on a step and either sort of stepping off or it's the line in the sand isn't it it's stepping over the line or it's not and it's playing safe or it's being dangerous and I think that's what that really got with me Absolutely. That, and that, that ends up, that, that ends up, that's, I mean, you put it so well, that's exactly what it is with these, these boldness regrets. And it doesn't, it doesn't, this, this boldness is not cabined in only the romantic part of our life. It's everywhere. So it's people who had a chance to travel and didn't do it. It's people who, you know, uh, um, it's Americans who graduated from college, from university and um, wanted to study abroad during their university time and didn't because they were concerned. There's a woman in the book, Australian woman who whose best friend took a gap, you know, they were going to take gap year together and travel around and she didn't do it because she was timid and now she regrets it. So it's travel. It's oh my God, it's asking people out on dates, hundreds around the world. You know, there's a person, a man or a woman who I was interested in, I wanted to ask him or her out. And I didn't and I regretted it ever since. It's not starting a business. It's exactly being as you say, at that juncture, where you can play it safe, or you can take the chance and overwhelmingly, People who don't take the chance regret it. Not every single one and not everybody who takes the chance is elated about that. But there, there are people who said, oh, I started a business and it failed and I, I regret having done that. But for every one of those, there are 60, you know, 50, 60 people who have the opposite regret. Given that you've read 15,000 of these, and I'm guessing a lot of them are boldness regrets. If you, if someone said to you, okay, if I find myself in that position, if I can feel that electricity running up my back and I'm either getting off the train or I'm staying on, what should I do based on the fact that you've looked at it more than anyone else? You know, I I think that there's an argument, you know, it's hard to say for every single incident, but in general, Emma, I think it's very clear. I think you have to have a bias for action. I think you have to have a bias for stepping off the train. And, and at some level we're over-indexed on our fear of risk. And so my view is that now, again, it's not going to be true in every single situation, but in general, take that trip, Mm. ask that person out on a date, start that business, do something, Um, you know, have that, have that bias for action. And, and that, that might sound, um, you know, a little kind of chest thumping, but, I think it's what people are telling me. Again, if you think about the way I mean, you use the word earlier on that these that these regrets are messages to us, right? So these 15, the first 15,000 regrets that I read were messages to me. You have these people who are telling me what matters in their life and what matters in their life when they reflect is taking the chance. And, and, and I think that it has to do with some level, this boldness regrets have to do at some level with our mortality we human beings know we we are mortal we are not going to be here forever and i think that that somewhere in our brain in our um in our soul if one believes in that is this idea that i am mortal i'm not here forever and so in this vanishingly short amount of time that i'm on this planet i need to do something and and I and I and I, I think that's a fundamental part of who we are as human beings. And I think it's actually a an exhilarating and exalted 
part of human beings. Like I, I want people to live life as fully as they possibly can. I want people to take their shot because I've seen too many people who didn't do that and feel like crap. Mm. I was chatting to someone recently about one of the reasons why I, and just so you know a little bit about me, I am risk averse. I'm the person who stayed on the train and it's not something I love about myself or my yeah. character, but I was talking to someone saying, what are the reasons why you haven't done things? And definitely for me, it has, I would say 90% of the time, a lot of the fear comes from financial. I can't afford it. What happens if I run out of money? Yeah. And that, I guess, must must come into this regret survey as well in terms of yeah. how society works. It's like if life is a little easier if you have a, a absolutely, bit of money. absolutely, absolutely. But it's not only money. Okay, that's the thing. And and at some level, so so, so um, it, it's not because because like like stepping off that train was not a money decision. The 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 barrier was not. I don't have the money to, I don't have the money to do that. Asking somebody out on a date is not a money situation in, in general. Um, and so uh, this, this is why, this is why I hedged a little bit. Like, I don't think you take the risk in, I don't think every single situation that one is in, take the chance or play it safe. You always pick, take the chance because there are other factors that go in. So you have a family and you're, you're supporting, you know, a spouse and four kids and you want to start a rutabaga farm and you have no savings and you have to support your family and you know who knows whether rutabagas are going to be popular i don't you know in that case i don't know whether you go take your meager life savings and invest it in the rutabaga farm that is again there's there's certain you know each individual circumstance is different but in the aggregate in the aggregate what i found and what not not even what I found, what people have told me is that when they scrutinize those kinds of decisions retrospectively, they have been over-indexed on fear. They have been over-indexed on that, on, on their perception of, on that perception of risk. Sometimes you, you don't want to take the risk, but more often than we think, we overestimate, we overestimate the risk and underestimate how we'll feel when we don't take that chance. Hmm. Yes. It's um, now making me want to go and take every risk I possibly haven't taken in my life. You know what? You don't, you don't, we don't want to take every risk, but here's the thing. We want to actually correct the, we want to actually use what these people are telling to adjust our own decision-making dial. You don't want to turn the dial to every risk all the time, but I think that most people, their dials are set a little bit too risk averse and and if they keep that, if they keep the dial set that way, when they get further in life, they're going to regret it. And so if you just twist the dial a few notches toward taking the chance, I think people are going to be happier. That's actually, now that I've, I've got that visual in my head, I just want to like spinal tap my risk and put it up to 11. But yeah, I, no, you I don't want to, do you don't want to, you don't want to, I don't think you want to 11 your risk, but you want to actually turn the dial up. You, you want to turn the dial up a little bit. And I guess the only way you can turn the dial up other than listening to what these regrets are telling you and informing you is to actually begin to start to take the actions and be self-aware enough to know when you're playing it safe or you're staying in a, staying in your lane when you right. could be broadening your right. horizons. Right. Right. And, and, you know, and, and I think again, this, uh, I'm going to use a word that you used um, earlier, which is it's, it's a little twee to say, Oh, you gotta get comfortable being uncomfortable. But 
you do. <laughs> and there's some and there's some and, and this is part of the problem that we have, Emma, in that. So I'm, I'm arguing that uh, and it's I think it's an airtight argument based on the science is that regret this this emotion can clarify what we value and instruct us on how to do better. I think that's absolutely clear. And if you go to people and say, do you want that clarification? Yep. Do you want that instruction? Yep. And they say, but I don't want the discomfort. I don't want the pain. And it doesn't work that way. It comes together. And there's some very, there's some interesting new research from Ayelet Fishbach at the University of Chicago showing that when we actually, especially in learning, when we seek discomfort, right? Our instinct is always to avoid discomfort. But if we actually go and seek it, we learn faster. And so, and, 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 and so, you know, we have to, in some ways, um, uh, recognize the, the complicated nature of life that if we want to learn and grow, it's going to involve some degree of pain and discomfort. And we can't have it both ways. If you don't have the discomfort, you're not going to have the growth. It's not going to work that way. So if you spend all your time avoiding discomfort, then you're going you're gonna to not grow or learn or do anything. Well, this brings me into something I know regular listeners will know that uh, I've said this before, but this trigger culture, which is say we're having a debate and I say, Daniel, you've said something to me. I am triggered. I would like for you not to say it anymore. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas in fact, I think that the most useful, the more useful action in that moment is to say internally, Daniel said something that triggered me. So that's something within me that I maybe need to work on and figure out so that next time somebody, whether it's Daniel or someone else says it, I can move beyond it. Sure. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, it, I, I think that, that, that once again, we, that, that's, that some of the trigger, you know, you see this sometimes on, on newspaper articles and certainly on campus newspapers, you know, every story is adorned with a warning. No, we're talking about something uncomfortable. We're talking about, and I, I think that, I, I mean, I sort of admire the sentiment behind that, but I think it's, I think it, it, it is a misjudgment of human beings. I think that we, we tend to believe that sometimes we tend to believe that human beings are more fragile than they really are. And I, and I think it is our nature to be resilient, not resilient at all times and all things, but I think there's a basic resilience. And the way that we deepen our resilience is by putting ourselves into situations where that resilience is tested. And, and that's how, that's how we, that's how we, that's how we learn and grow. Here's the thing. I don't like experiencing regret. It doesn't feel good, but it's part of my life. And I, and I, and I have a choice. I can say, ah, no regrets, you know, pretend it doesn't exist. I can, I can luxuriate in it. I can bathe in it. I can use it as an excuse for not doing anything, or I can look it in the eye and do something about it. And, and I think that the healthy approach is that third one, which is, confronting your regrets using them as signals and messages the way you just described it there remind me it just made me think like humans are adaptogens and we should shouldn't we we should adapt to our environment and become our resilience should improve human beings time. human beings are more resilient than we often give them credit for and and the thing is is that resilience doesn't emerge fully formed in human beings resilience is built resilience is grown and the way that resilience is built and grown grow, grown is through some amount of difficulty there's a whole line of research especially in learning 
which are, which, are, which are what are called desirable difficulties. Again, there's a middle ground here. You don't, if, you take, if you're trying to learn how to play a sport or anything, let's take a sport. You're trying to learn how to play a sport. If the practice is too easy, you're not going to learn anything. If the practice is too hard, you're not going to learn anything because it's too frustrating. But if the practice is the right level of difficulty, you're going to learn. And if the next time the practice is a little bit more difficult than that, you're going to learn. It's desirable difficulties. If you're learning to, if you, like my, my wife decided to learn to play tennis recently. And, you know, when you're 50 years old and you're learning to play tennis, it's hard. All right. You try to hit the ball and it goes over there and it goes over there. And, and the thing is, it's, it's difficult. But that, you know, if you invite that level of discomfort, um, you can actually do better at you can. That's how you that's how you learn and, and, and you and you grow. And we see it a lot in parenting where parents try, especially here in the States and certain social groups, try to basically snowplow all difficulties away from their children, make things oh my God, little Johnny is feeling uncomfortable. Little Johnny is having a difficult time. I'm going to intervene. I'm going to solve the problem for him. And then that doesn't do little Johnny any good. But little Johnny's parents are, are us who didn't have that and maybe wanted it in when we were kids. That's what I always think. It's like we do to our kids. I don't have children, by the way, but I wonder whether it's because we do it or parents do it to their children because they wish somebody had done it for them. Maybe. I mean, I think it's, it could be, I think it, I think it varies from, I think it varies from, 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 from place to place. I think that right now we are, that's a complicated issue. I think right now yeah. people are more aware of dangers um, and, um, and there's also, um, I find that parents are more fearful. They're, they're more nervous in general than they were when, I was a kid. Maybe I'm just confecting that, but you know, like eh. a lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. <laughs> Again, and, and I don't want to get, I, you know, there's a tendency to look back on your own life and talk about, you know, with some degree of nostalgia, oh, the good old days, you know. Um, but, you know, when I was a little kid, when I was a kid, I mean, I grew up in a middle class place. I didn't grow up in, in a war zone. But, you know, when I was eight or nine, when I was like, you know, seven years old, I would walk to school several blocks. You know, I, when I was eight or nine years old, I would walk to the public library that was, you know, um, you know, a kilometer and a half away from my, my parents' house. And it was fine. It's not because my parents were like, oh, we're going to teach you how to be a risk taker. And it's not like I said, oh, I'm going to be a bold nine-year-old who's going to, it's like, no, of course, you want to go to the library, go to the freaking library, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. But like you say, I, we really could unpick that for hours. But actually, one of the things I wanted to go back to a little bit was the kindness regret. Because when you introduced the your own personal regret. I, re I really resonate with that because the younger version of me, and I've done the work in therapy, I understand why I was spiky and not as friendly to the world as I wanted to be. But even now I can get into a little bit of a, a rut and it's usually on a Sunday afternoon, Daniel. Mm. And it's when it revisits me and it plagues me and it haunts me because even though 
I've done the work and I don't do it anymore. I am plagued by the fact that I didn't come out perfect. That it was either, do you know what I mean? Like it was even a part of me. And I, oh. and I then begin to compare myself and think, well, the other people who haven't been spiky with people and snappy in the past, if they haven't been, are they better than me? And I get into that weird, but it, it does stem from regret, but then this whole other thing emerges and then I have to shut it down. Um, so this is where self-compassion can come in and it can arrest that march. So what's happening here is that you are, or slide really, less of a march because it's that you can arrest that slide toward that that place. And so what self, so, so first of all, when you look at yourself, what you're doing there is you are, Actually, if, you, if someone came to you and said, there were times in my life when I was spiky, there were times in my life when I didn't treat people really well. Um, I don't think that you would assess that. I don't think you would look at that and say, oh, my God, you're just an awful person. I don't want any part of you. You're just a horrible, wretched human being. But that's how we talk to ourselves sometimes. And so the, 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 the solution there is don't do that. <laughs> um, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. And we have a remarkable, diff remarkably difficult time doing that. So we talk to ourselves in ways that we would never talk to anybody else. And that's not a good idea. Um, and, and again, once again, there's, there's nuance here. There's, there's a middle ground. I'm not saying that we should talk to ourselves, that we should treat ourselves better than we should treat anybody when we treat anybody else. But I don't think we should treat ourselves worse than we treat everybody else. Just treat, treat ourselves with the same kindness you treat somebody else. That's number one. Number two is recognize that your mistakes, your missteps, your, your, for instance, you, Emma, your concerns about kindness are part of the human condition. I mean, again, there's a little bit of tough love here. And that's basically, I would tell you, you're not that special. You have regrets about kindness. So do I. I'll go into that database. I'll show you a, a thousand more. It's like, this is life. It's just the human condition. And also the other thing that's important is, when people make mistakes, when people screw up, when they, when they have setbacks, they often take that moment and use that one moment to make a universal assessment of who they are in their whole life. And that mistake, that screw up is a moment in your life. It's not the full measure of your life. And when we do that, those things, treat ourselves with kindness rather than contempt, recognize that our regrets are part of the human condition, recognize that these things are moments, not the entirety of our life, um, we open the way to actually derive lessons from our regrets. I will take some of the things that you have just said and turn them into voice notes that I will play to myself on a Sunday afternoon, particularly about tough love. Um, another part, another type of regret actually is the foundation regret. And yeah. this one was, again, I remember sort of about five or six years ago, late thirties had reached that point where I thought, um, I'd got beyond that point of thinking the world is my oyster. And I realized that if life is a corridor, like a hotel corridor with lots of doors, there were some doors behind me now that were permanently closed. Yeah. That's a nice that, way to look at it. And that's kind of okay. You can kind of get to grips with it. And I always think about language. I have, I only speak English. I can understand a little bit of French. And I know at my age, I could probably pick up another language if I wanted totally. to. I'm not, I'm not inclined enough to, mm -hmm. but I have a regret about not being fluent in another language up to this point. Yeah, and I, I that was something that. as well that I think came up a lot in the survey. Yeah, no, I can, I can understand that. The question is how, you know, 
the, the question is how deep a regret is this? Because if it is that deep of a regret, you got plenty of time to learn to learn French. Um, although I would recommend that you learn Spanish over over French or Arabic or Mandarin. Um, but as someone who studied French for for six years and and can barely speak French and find it largely useless around the world, uh, the the um, you know, it, but but uh, but I think what you want to do here, and I, I I sort of I admire the way that you're scrutinizing this because you could have, um, um. Okay, I'll give you an example from my own something similar. So I never learned how to play a musical instrument, and I do regret that. But here's the thing: it doesn't bug me that much. It doesn't keep me up at night. It doesn't stick with me over and over again. If I started listing my regrets. It might be on the list, but it's going to be pretty far down the list. And here's the thing. That's telling me something. That's telling me that that's, this is something that I kind of sort of value, but life is about making decisions on, on a, you know, you can't do everything. You should do some things. And so, so the fact that my regrets about kindness are far more prevalent and intense than my regrets about not playing a musical instrument, that, ins that tells me something. Now, someone else might have the reverse. And there's no right answer, but that tells that person something. So the fact that you have this kind of low-grade regret about language, it's like, okay, maybe, you know, deal with your higher-level regrets. Deal with the ones that are bugging you on that Sunday afternoon. Deal with the ones that, you know, that have been sticking around for, 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 for decades. And as you, as, you, as you think about, again, using your metaphor of the corridor, you look, you look back, okay, so that French door – Maybe it's closed. Okay. Actually, that's one that I don't, but, but the thing is, like, maybe that's okay because as you're walking down that corridor, you got all these other doors available there too. Exactly. It doesn't, yeah. It, you're completely and, right. And, and the way that life is configured is that if, if the life is this corridor and there are these doors everywhere, you can't go in every door. <laughs> yes. Yes. Cause then that is just going to be sensory overload. And then that's a whole other. That's a whole other right. messaging system that you need to listen to. Um, what I I think about, I guess, with that as well, sliding doors moment, and I'm sure you know what I mean by that, this idea of having a regret. Maybe if we're talking about a language, for example, it's that, oh, I didn't take that opportunity to go to spend some time in France and actually learn the language properly in inverted commas. What about reconciling, a little bit like the guy on the train, reconciling that kind of my life could have looked so different well i mean you there there are a few things that you can do okay so so let's say that let's say that you have and this is more true for regrets of action rather than rather than inaction so mm -hmm. but let's let's take the inaction regret of not doing something i think you have to actually scrutinize in the way you, that you're doing if this is something that is really bothering you if this is something that is sticking with you for year after year after year after year listen to that that's telling you something. I mean, deal with the self, you know, do the steps of self-compassion so you don't immobilize yourself on that. But if it's sticking around with you, make sense of it and extract a lesson from it and do something about it. So that's, that's, that's one thing. Now, if it turns out to be an action regret, then there are ways to take away some of the psychological sting. So, um, so if you have regrets about bullying, I mean, not you, Emma, but, but if, one, if somebody has regrets about bullying, um, what I've seen is that amazingly is that people have gone back to the people they've bullied 20 years ago and apologized 
And that's a way to undo a regret, to make amends for a regret, to make, you know, make restitution for it. The other thing that you can do, again, to take, that doesn't extinguish the regret, mm -hmm. but it reduces it. The other thing for action regrets is to do what's called a downward counterfactual, or what I like to call an at least, which is to find the silver lining of it. So we have, again, in the database, people are telling me this. I got lots of people, they're almost all women. I think, they're almost, I think they are all women who have a regret that say something like, I regret marrying that idiot, but at least I have these two great kids. And so they find the silver lining in the, um, you know, I shouldn't have taken that. Uh, what oh, I so regret taking that job. It wasted two years of my life and it set back my career, but at least I met my good friend, Joe. Actually, you mentioned apologies there, and I've been wanting to speak to someone in detail about apologies on this show. Now, we're not going to go into any forensic detail here, but I wondered, my question that I have with apologies, and I'd be really interested in your view on this, given the research that you've done and the, what you just mentioned, is the apology for the person apologizing, or is it for the person receiving it? And if it's for the former, does it need to be shared? I think that the answer is who's it for the, the giver or the recipient? I think the answer is yes mm -hmm. for both. <laughs> Second one is, uh, is, uh, uh, does it need to be shared? I think the answer is yes. Uh, I, I think it does. Um, because a, an internal apology, uh, you know, I, 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 an apology is an action. All right. It's, it's not only a word. It's not only a thought. It's not only words. It's an action. Okay. So if you think, so I'll, I'll get, this is, this is the problem with, 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 with interviewing somebody who uh, uh, concentrated in linguistics as an undergraduate, this, you just made a huge colossal interviewing mistake here because we're going to go down a big rabbit hole. All right. There's a concept known as a, as a, speech act okay where the words are an action let me tell you what i mean by that if i say to you good morning that i'm just conveying sentiment conveying information but if you are deciding to get married and i um um uh, okay now if you are deciding to get married you am are deciding to get married and you have a partner and, um, and I am a minister, all right? And I say, I now pronounce you a married couple. That changes the conditions in the world. I I've still said, I've, I've just said words like the same way I've said good morning, but mm -hmm. that is a speech act. That is something that is actually changes the conditions in the world. If I'm a judge and I say, I hereby sentence you to three years in prison, that's a speech act. And so an apology is not merely the conveyance of an emotion or a uh, information it is a speech act and mm -hmm. it has to be it has to be public that's my view i'm not saying that's a like a universally true thing it's my argument here um and so and 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 i and i it's 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 an action that you take it's not only a thought that you have it's not only a feeling that you have it's an action it 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 changes it rearranges the atoms in the universe when you do that publicly. And I think that that's what makes it, I think that's what makes it powerful. Now, who's it for? I think it's for both. All right. Um, I think it, that for, for the, for the apologizer, it is a form of unburdening. It is a lifting of the weight. Um, 
I think for the recipient, it is in some can be often less important because they might be less troubled by it than the person on the other end. But for the for the recipient, I think it is in some ways a restoration of the um, of justice uh, in the in the universe. So I mean, it's a fascinating issue. It, you should do a whole show on apologies because yes. people people stink at apologizing generally. Well, yes. 100%. And this is why I really wanted to, to look at it because I've thought before about, should I go back and speak to people from my distant past and apologize? And the reason this came up is because somebody apologized to me after a decade. For what? And for poor treatment in, a, in the workplace. Uh-huh. And I, I understood there would, there'd obviously been a dark night of the soul. And I really respected the action, as you say, of right. reaching out. Um, but it didn't change anything for me, really. It was, but that I, I respect. Were you bothered? Were you bothered by that mistreatment at the time? But I had grown. I had accepted it. Okay, right, right. And did the did the did the, did receiving that apology change your the way you felt about that? The way you thought about that? I guess it just tied it in a bow. It didn't change the chemicals yeah. in yeah. the in the beaker on the Bunsen right. burner right. but it just tied it in a bow and kind of put it to one side and it no longer well actually yeah. it did change it it made it less sour okay interesting yeah um but so that was really interesting because I thought well did the apologizer get the reaction they wanted and how does one receive an apology because uh, I guess that's another part of the apologizing system is you're apologizing and do you ha- does it have to be an emotional dead end for the apologizer? Do you need it to be received in a certain mm. way? Does you need to get a reply? I think that's what's quite fascinating. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, you should do a show on that. <laughs> I will. Okay. Well, we'll move on from apologizing and we'll go back to regrets. Unless anyone is listening and they have um, the regret of not apologizing, maybe think about that. So, well, actually, that leads us really nicely into moral regrets. Should have done the right thing. Uh, sure. I mean, moral regrets are... Um, more regrets are exactly that. that. So you're at a juncture once again. You can do the right thing. You can do the wrong thing. You can take the high road or you can take the low road. And when people take the low road, not every time, but a lot of the time, most times they regret it. And that's everything. And what I saw in this collection were we talked about a lot, bullying, those kinds of things, a lot of regrets about that, uh, regrets about marital infidelity, regrets about other forms of cheating and dishonesty. Um, and again, this is a smallest category, but pretty deeply felt. Hmm. And actually, with you saying that there are all these common regrets, it reminded me of a conversation I had with Anjali Kumar about her quest to find God. I don't know mm-hmm. if you know this story. No. So she went on a quest to find God, but in not the obvious places. And um, okay. before the scandal, she found John of God in Brazil. Okay. And you could go as a proxy and take three wishes from people. And she kind of told the guy at the coffee shop and then he said so by the by the time she was going on this trip, she had thousands and thousands of emails of people saying, these are my three wishes. And a bit like you, she looked at all the data and she realized that actually fundamentally, everybody was asking for the three same things, health, Interesting. happiness, and Interesting. love. Interesting. Interesting. And the fourth thing me. on that email, don't tell. So as human oh. beings, we're all asking for the three same three Secrecy, things. Secrecy, yeah. Don't want anyone to know. Yeah, fair. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's uh, that's um, 
That yeah, that, that's fascinating. It makes it makes perfect it makes perfect sense to me, particularly that last one of love, because the other regret that you know I collected were were these connection regrets, which are ultimately about love. It's basically about relationships. You want to reach out. You you know you have a relationship, not not only a romantic relationship. In fact, mostly not romantic relationships. The relationships come apart. They drift apart. You want to do something. You want to reach out. You don't do it because you feel awkward. You think the other side's not going to care, so it drifts apart even more. And um, and that really bugs people. And I think what what bugs them is the is is the whole the missing piece is exactly that love, and not only romantic love, but mm. um, uh, but just a broader notion of love, the love that we have for um, you know other people, everybody in our lives. I think a really interesting question you pose, and I know it's not something that we can do quite yet, although Elon's probably working on it, is um, being able to go back in time and asking yourself, what what would you really do? If yeah. you were able to go back to that juncture, what would you do? It's a fascinating question. It's a source of a lot of great literature. If you can, you know, if you can go, you go back and do that. Now, the thing is, is that as we all know from science fiction and other kinds of tales, if you go back and make a different decision, then you will arrive in a reconfigured present. And you might not want that. And you might not know what the implications are of that. You know, I, I think that the, you know, another way to do that is, is, a, is a more sort of in a more clinical way, which is to go back and scrutinize the decision itself um, and say, based on what you knew then, was this the right decision? And if it wasn't, then how did, if it, if it, if it, if it was based on what you knew then, let yourself off the hook because we all make bad decisions. If it wasn't a good decision based on what you knew then, if there, if you could have done better, give your have yourself self show yourself some self-compassion, you know, write about it or talk about it even privately to make sense of it and then try to extract a lesson from it to do better next time. That's a really important I love that phrase let yourself off the hook. Because you can yeah. let yourself hang there for ages. Um right, and and the thing is that might feel morally virtuous but it's completely useless. And I guess that what you said earlier goes back to that idea of wallowing in regrets. Right, right, right. Particularly when, particularly when, you know, if, if I, I mean, I mean, like, I, I'll give you an example. Um, so I did this, um, there's Tina Selig, who teaches at Stanford University here, has this idea of what's called a failure resume, where you, um, instead of, it's sort of a reverse image of your resume. So you list all of your, in one column, you list all of your failures, your screw-ups, your setbacks, da, da, da. and the second column, you list the lesson you learned from it. And in the third column, you list what you're going to do about it. And when I did this myself, there were many things that were screw-ups, mistakes, failures. And I went to drive the lesson from it. And the lesson was, there wasn't a lesson. Sometimes shit happens. Sometimes like things don't work out. And that's in, in some ways a relief because it allows you to isolate on the things where there actually were legitimate, massive screw-ups that were entirely my, my mistake. Mm. Yeah. So much of life is gamified. I don't know if you feel like that these days, but it came to mind when I was reading the book and when I was thinking about having this conversation with you, because I thought, and I guess I maybe gave a little bit of insight about this when I talked about my Sunday afternoons, and this idea that you kind of, we're all our own avatars and we go through life and you don't want to pick up regrets. <laughs> and the way, reason I say that is because I can sometimes look at other people who seem to be bulletproof, like something happens or they screw up and they seem fine with it. It's like water off a duck's back. And I can't really compute that sometimes because I think, well, if that had happened to me, I would probably be stewing. I'd be still taking a bit of time to get used to it. 
Um, but actually, I guess what I hope listeners take away from this and what I'm guessing you might say is actually, as long as you're not wallowing, as long as you're using those messages to improve, to clarify how you feel about certain things, and also to help you paint a picture of the person you want to be in life, actually picking up those totally scars they're not scars they're like badges they're rewards that ding every time they happen yeah i mean listen i mean it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting idea that whether like life i mean i think it's possible to think about life as a game i mean essentially what you're doing is you're uh you're you're you're, you're trying to reach the next level you're trying to accumulate points you're trying to sort of see um what you're trying to see what um you know whether you can get better and better at something and then the but the other thing the interesting thing about that is that James Cars has a book from 50 years ago where he talks about finite games and infinite games and and his argument is that life is an infinite game a finite game the goal is to win an infinite game the goal is to keep playing and you know he has this kind of philosophical track that life is an infinite game and if we think about the point of this if if, if life is indeed gamified what's the point the point is not that the point is not to get a higher score than your neighbor. The point is to keep playing. That's a really good way of looking at it, actually. I <laughs> wish I'd come up with it. It's not James Carr's from like 1970, right? 50 years old. I love C-A-R-S-E. that. I don't know if you've ever seen the get the film uh, King of Kong, but it's making me want to rewatch that film. It's about. I have not seen that. I'll watch it. It's a strong recommend. So I know we're drawing to the end of our time together, but there is something I wanted to ask you about, which is partly because it's one of my favorite songs, but it's this idea of, um, I should have known regrets. And is that when you're not listening to some of those signals and then it might manifest in a bigger issue? Meaning? So with, I should have known, I can think of many things. I don't know if you can. Oh, I should have known. Okay, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I just wondered where that really fit in in all well, of the research that you've done. I would I would scrutinize that. Should you have um, should you have um, should you have really known that? Um, I, I think scrutinize that. In some cases, you should have known. Uh, in other cases, you couldn't have known. And I think what you do is you go in in a you go in as a um, uh, you go in in a more dispassionate way and say. Um, if we, if, we, if we just scrutinize this whole idea, I should have known, all right? Uh, it, it, on one level, it's an invitation to beat yourself up. That's a bad idea. On the other level, it's, it's a way to scrutinize the integrity of a decision that you made. Because in some cases, you should have known, okay? You, you, you know, and, and, and so really, really scrutinize that. I think that the key here with a lot of these negative emotions, which, which we haven't learned how to do, and, and is that we don't want to ignore them. We don't want to wallow in them. We want to think about them. You know, we want to, you know, that these, that you have to understand, like, what are these negative feelings for? And to me, these negative feelings are triggers or signals, catalysts for thinking. And when we think about them, we can do better. And so I think, I, I think it's a very, very potent question to say, should you have known? And I think that you can, if you can, um, a way to do that in a more dispassionate way, perhaps, is to think about it as somebody else. So suppose that your friend Maria or your friend Fred was in this situation and, and came to you. Would you say he should have known or she should have known? 
Um, and, and I think in some cases you might say, yeah, you should have known. You didn't do your work. On the other cases, it's like, how were you supposed to know that? Um, and so, I, I, so again, I want people to think. Thinking is underrated. Um, we want to, we want to, we want to think, especially with negative emotions, the way that you defang them, the way that you enlist them is by thinking about them, not by batting them away, not by wallowing in them, but by thinking about them. I love the expression defanging these negative emotions because you're absolutely right. Because they're, they're, they're ready to, they're ready to like, sink their teeth into you and you can say no i don't consent to you sinking my i don't consent to having your teeth sunk into my soul and what i'm going to do is by thinking you take away the fangs do you have any techniques for if you feel that the negative thoughts are maybe going beyond that helpful threshold do you have anything that you do and i'll share with you what i do just yeah i mean so it's, like so it's a few things it's it's the self-compassion steps that we've been talking about uh, here, which I think are really important in arresting that slide. Um, but also um, that the self-distancing of asking yourself, you know, if your best friend was in the situation you're in right now, what would you tell her to do? What would you tell him to do? And I think w w people always, people always know when we, when they, when they take a step back. Yeah. I sometimes just blow a raspberry at it. If I feel That's like fine it. too. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's like, I think that that is, I think that that is psychologically, healthy there there is a form there is a there there is a um you know like a lot of times with negative thoughts you 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 actually have i mean the stoics gave us some guidance on this as well that is the thought the feeling is not you all right it is something that exists out there and so if you take a step back and you say here's this here's this 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 negative feeling coming in and it's not very instructive not very useful you know, it's like a, it's like a, a soap bubble, pop it or blow a raspberry at it and just dismiss it. Yeah. I remember when I, years ago, when I first went into therapy and I was really struggling actually with my mental health, I was depressed. I remember someone saying something like, uh, don't believe everything you think. Right. And it's one of the most freeing things anyone's ever said to me. Cause it's like, right. I've created a reality, but it's not a reality. Right, exactly. You want to, you want to, you want to, you want to, you want to scrutinize that. And and I think these these techniques of self distancing are useful to that. I mean, truly, the single best decision making tactic that I know of is when you're facing a decision, when you're facing trying to at a juncture, say, "What would I tell my best friend to do?" And people always people always know. And so apply that knowledge, apply that insight to yourself, and you'll be in good shape. This is just, you've just been fantastic. Thank you so much insight. And I, I really do think, um, and what I hope that we do on this podcast is we talk about some of the more difficult stuff because actually you have to, it's good to get uncomfortable. Absolutely. Absolutely. You don't, you don't learn in comfort is not the condition. Comfort is, is not the condition in which people learn. Okay. Um, I really appreciate your time. Listeners, Daniel's book, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backwards Moves Us Forwards is available now and the link is in the show notes. But it has been such a pleasure to speak to you and thank you so much. Thank you, Emma. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. 
If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. Bye.